Good morning, everyone. We're going to be reading uh, Acts 16, uh, verses 16 through 40. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and, uh, and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrate, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined them in attacking them, and the magistrate tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into the prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received his orders, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out in a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and, the, and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of that night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police, saying, Let those, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in the peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrate, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and then they had seen the brothers. They encouraged them and departed. You may be seated. Would you join me in prayer as we begin? To you, Father, the Most High God, we pray. You are the one who rescues and delivers. And as we open your word today, pray that you would remind us once again of your eternal purposes. That you would renew us again to the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. That you would recall to our attention the power that only you can give. Your power has the ability to break chains and set people free. Your power can control the course of nature. And your power, by means of your word, can take a cold heart and make it new. I pray that each one here would believe 
on the Lord Jesus Christ, that each one here would be saved. Pray, Father, you give us ears to hear. May we accept your word, bear fruit for you in our days that we have here. It's in the name of Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life, we pray. Amen. Anyone here ever tried running with weights on? And I know from a training perspective, there's folks who um, maybe when they're training for a particular race and what have you, they'll put, they'll actually do it intentionally. They'll put weights on themselves. And then when they, after a period of training, they take those weights off, they can move much faster without those weights. Um, I was thinking about trying to walk around even with chains. I don't know how many of you in here have been in chains before. Anybody been in chains before? No one, if you did, you probably wouldn't want to admit it in this gathering. But thinking about the weight of the chains and and trying to walk around and do your day with chains draped around you would be a little cumbersome, wouldn't it? Perhaps a different angle with it. Thinking about your life for just a moment. Does your life feel like a, a struggle? When you wake up in the morning, are you easily weighed down by, by all that's, that's going on in your life? All the expectations, all the work, all the family needs? Closely connected to that, would you say that your life is characterized more by bondage and chains or freedom? If I was to take that set of questions up, maybe one more level. You're here today and and perhaps you don't feel weighed down. Some of you may not feel chained in the life that you're living. But do you know anyone connected to you? Someone in your sphere of influence that's weighed down? Anybody come to mind? Do you know of anyone in bondage, anyone wrapped up, anyone ensnared, anyone in the grips of chains that seemingly won't let them go? I believe the text today instructs the follower of Jesus to walk in the Spirit, to follow where He leads, to say yes to what He points to, but for, listen, this is important, for a greater purpose than himself. You know, Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Now, that yoke of bondage may look differently for everyone here. But how often are we prone to be entangled in that stuff? After having been set free by Christ. If you're following Jesus this morning. Are you standing fast in the liberty by which Christ Jesus has made you free? Do you find yourself prone to return all too often to that entangled web of bondage? 
We need to understand from the text, the Apostle Paul is not the only one called to make a difference around the world. Amen? The Apostle Paul is not the only one. Nor his companion Silas. Nor his companion Timothy. What if God is calling you to make a difference right where you're at? Right here in Pendleton or wherever you may have as your home address. I know we have several home addresses in this gathering. What if he's called you to make a difference in your household, at your workplace, in the neighborhood in which you live? Do you see that, and we sing the song, where he leads me I will follow. But do you see that where he leads you truly, you should be the one who follow? When the Holy Spirit directs, do you recognize his voice? Have you equated his leading in your life with souls that need to hear what you have to say? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever equated that, that where he might want you to go, where he might want you to, to be, that the reason he wants you to go and to be there is for some reason other than yourself? Have you ever thought about that? Many of us do a pretty good job thinking about ourselves. Perhaps God's calling on your life is intended to impact, influence others. Others that that maybe you wouldn't immediately think of. Others currently living in weighty circumstances. Others living in these chains of bondage. Others who are far from God. You know, some of our our, our little ones enjoy from time to time. They like to color. Some of you little ones may like to color as well. I'm, I'm, I still, every now and then, like to do it myself. It it's kind of brings back some good memories. But there's one page that, that, that drew my attention this week as I was thinking about this text. There are certain pages that have the connect the dots. And, you know, they have the certain numbers. And as long as you draw the line in the right order and, and you count in the right order, you're going to get to be able to see some kind of picture. This is what this looks like. It all starts to come together. And I got to thinking about that, and I got to thinking about how many of us perhaps have been about the business of connecting our own dots. We've tried to put our own dots on the, on the page of life. Instead of listening for God and standing at the ready to connect the dots that God has already prepared for you. Remember, you are his workmanship. You are created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he, guess what? He prepared in advance for you. Are we ready? Have we thought much about the dots that he desires? He desires for you to help connect for his sake, for the sake of the gospel. A follower of Jesus, church, has a purpose that's much bigger than himself. I think in the day and age we live, getting that particular message is a very important point. We are here for a bigger reason than ourselves. We are here more than just to grow in our own understanding and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Wonderful, and that's what we're to be about, yes. But I believe God has called us and has given us a reason, has given us a purpose for living this life that extends far beyond this one body and your one body. You know, in the text, in chapter 16, verses 6 and 7, 
we see that the Holy Spirit is instrumental in directing the course of itinerary. And you know, I find it interesting that we emphasize these verses uh, to point out what the Spirit is doing. The Spirit, remember, forbids on one occasion to preach the word in Asia, right, verse 6. And then verse 7, after they come to Mycenae, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. And we read those verses, and oftentimes we're amazed at how clear the itinerary seems to be. Church, are are verses 6 and 7 intended to show how spiritual Paul and his companions are? Or is it meant to voice what ought to be? I believe that our amazement with verses 6 and 7 is nothing more than a self-indictment of what is not present oftentimes in our lives and an awareness of what ought to be. Verses 6 and 7, I believe, mark the life of a follower of Jesus. His life is to be patterned by obedience to the voice of God. The voice of God speaks as His Holy Spirit ministers the Holy Scriptures into our lives, pointing us always... Always, the Holy Spirit always points us to the things of Christ. This is normal Christianity. This is the way it ought to be. Verse 9 says that there was a vision. Appeared to Paul in the night. This man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him and said, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now, after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding what they conclude, that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. What's the conclusion drawn? This must mean that the Lord has called us to preach the gospel to them. Remember, the gospel is advancing to the end of the earth at this time. And so when we understand that, that's the outline, Acts 1-8, right, to the end of the earth. That's where we're at right now. Acts 13 through 28 is going to give us the, the, the gospel moving forward to the very end of the earth. Does the conclusion that they draw in verse 10 align with what God's called them to? Yes, it does. It does. Wherever they went, the gospel went with them. Wherever they went, they were sure to teach the word. Wherever they went, lives seemed to be changed for the better. Wherever they went, the gospel was being proclaimed. And there's no difference here on this occasion as they are in Philippi. They go into the Roman colony of Philippi. They spend some days there before making their way down to the river to pray. They come across some women, one of whom is Lydia, the God-fearing Jew, whose heart, Scripture says in verse 14, the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. Verse 16 then begins this way. Now it happened as we went to prayer. You know, I was drawn to ask another question right here. How did they know to keep on going in Philippi? I mean... Lydia and her household had been one to the Lord, and the Lord opened her heart. And there was some fruit there. How did they know to keep on going? 
after seeing the Lord transform Lydia and her household with the good news of Jesus, why did Paul and company continue on? Why did they feel the need to continue in Philippi? I believe the answer is connected to the heart of Paul's ministry in the Lord. We've said this before. I believe it's important to say it again here. Paul seems to be most concerned about making disciples and not simply seeing a few converts. But I believe there's something else in the mix. He also was most concerned about planting churches for the glory of God and not content with seeing just one family come to know the Lord. And once in Philippi, he realized the need for the Lord's work. Remember, at the time of his arrival, there is no synagogue. It's said that in order for there to be a synagogue in a particular location, there needed to be 10 Jewish males. Seems like the Jewish population wasn't all that big in Philippi at this time. Because custom is that he would go into a place and he would go into the synagogue. If there was a synagogue, he would go into the synagogue. That's Paul's custom. In Philippi, there was no synagogue. So it seems like Philippi had a need for the gospel, huh? And Paul, moved by the power of the Holy Spirit, he would have seen the need to press on, those are his words in Philippians, to press on with the gospel in Philippi unless and until the Spirit directed him otherwise. So in route to prayer, they encounter a certain slave girl possessed with the spirit of divination. And the text says that she brought her masters much profit by fortune-telling. Just an application question right here. Have, you, have any of you ever countered any opposition to your own prayer time? I mean, you, you have a great idea, you've got great intentions of having this prayer time, and there's something that happens. There's some kind of opposition. Paul and company are en route to prayer. And this young lady meets them. Just for a moment, diving into the culture, the Roman culture of the day, to remember that slavery was a part of this particular culture in Philippi. I think understanding a text demands an acknowledgement of the context. And in the Roman colony of Philippi, slavery is alive and well. And you know, when you think of slavery in this country, it's not too far removed, is it? You might recall Abraham Lincoln, an Emancipation Proclamation. You might recall a lady by the name of Harriet Tubman, one writer said of Harriet Tubman that when she discovered what it was to be free, she wanted to help other people to freedom. Said she was often compared to Moses who led the Israelites of the Bible to freedom. That let my people go. On this day in the first century, Paul encounters a slave girl. In more ways than one, she was enslaved. The text says that her masters gained much profit from her work of fortune telling. So you have these men of God and they're encountering a slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination who made a nice income for her masters through fortune telling. There's an encounter 
on the way to the prayer meeting. Now, the spirit of divination literally is a spirit of python. Most of us, when we think of python, we think of snake, rightly so. We think of something I don't want to be around, don't want to be in the vicinity of. One writer speaking to this says that the important thing for us to understand and gather is that not far from Philippi, in this very area of Europe, there was a shrine to the Pythian Apollo. Remember, the Greek gods. And so the slave girl was identified with that particular manifestation of the Greek god and seems to have told the future by her relationship to him. That is, she had been possessed by a demonic spirit associated with that particular cult. And so the text says that the girl followed Paul for many days. But I want you to see, she is no silent follower. Some, sometimes, you know, when you're following somebody, you're checking, you're, you're voicing, you're, you're, this particular young lady definitely was voicing some things over the days that she was following Paul and Silas and Timothy. The text seems to indicate that she cried, the text says she cried out. I don't know, uh, some of your translations have something different than cried out, but that word there for cried is the word that we see in many instances is screamed. Now all of a sudden the text has a different nuance to it, doesn't it? She's following them for many days and she's just not simply saying these words in a normal tone of voice like I am right now, just speaking to you. But she's screaming this message. Imagine that. In fact, when you see Jesus in the Gospels and you see Jesus encountering those possessed with the demon, oftentimes they're doing the very same thing. They're crying out. They're, they're loud tone of voice and acknowledgement that they know who this Jesus is. Well, this young lady is screaming, following these men and yelling, these men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. Now, you might read these words and marvel at how accurate she was. It's, she's pretty on point, on target. What's wrong with what she said? Some of you might be inclined to ask. Isn't it true that Paul and company are servants of the Most High God? Isn't it true that they are on mission to proclaim the gospel, the way of salvation? Why is it a problem? Why, according to verse 18, has Paul become, after many days, greatly annoyed or irritated? Let me give you three things to consider. One, we need to remember that Satan transforms himself into an angel of light. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 14 and 15, that it says, Therefore, it's no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. So, just because it sounds good, let's be careful not to equate that it must be of God. Second, your testimony doesn't rest solely in your words, but what's in your heart. This slave girl, and you feel for this girl. She's been enslaved on two fronts, spiritually speaking and physically. These, these, these masters have been lording over her and using her 
for their income, making a lot of money off of this young lady. She's being led by the spirit of divination, which we know in the scripture is an abomination to the Lord. So while her words seem accurate, her heart is far from the Lord. Jesus said something about heart and words, didn't he? I think thirdly, there's a discernment issue at work. Discernment is needed to handle the conflict. Notice in the text, Paul is, is not quick to speak to this slave girl. It's after some days. And I believe there's a critical discernment factor at work. Take care to listen to the Lord and hear his voice on your situation before you speak. One writer says in reference to this particular situation with the encounter. It says the father of lies speaks the truth when it suits his purposes, disguising himself and his emissaries as angels of light. So some of his most effective and diabolical work is done in the name of Jesus Christ. He often uses a little truth to ensnare people into a false system of religion. Like his Lord, Paul wanted no publicity from Satan. <laughs> we don't need any publicity from Satan. Okay. With the authority then granted to him as an apostle of the Lord... Paul commands the spirit to come out of this slave girl. The text says, and he came out that very hour. Now there's a significant wordplay right here in the text I'd like you to see in verse 18 and 19. While it's true that the spirit of divination came out of this slave girl, it is also true that her masters saw their hope of profit come out. Same word. <laughs> the spirit of divination came out, and those masters who were gaining a lot of money, they lost their pro the profit came out. At that time as well. At the same time. And you know, it's interesting what people do when their source of income is taken away. There's a lot of different things and people might try to do when the source of income is immediately taken away. Immediately. Some turn violent, as in this particular case. They seize hold of Paul and Silas and they drag them into the marketplace. Now the marketplace of the day was the location of the court. So they were dragging them into the court, into the marketplace. And I want you to look at the charges that are being brought forth here. They brought them into the magistrates and said, these men, being Jews, so it's a significant thing that they need to make sure everybody knows they're Jews. By the way, just as a side note, I believe this is one of the reasons why we hear only of Paul and Silas and not Timothy, okay, and not Timothy. Um, I believe that's one of the reasons here. Uh, Timothy was, uh, was not entirely Jewish, whereas uh, uh, you see Silas, remember where Silas came from. Silas was one of those original Jews from Jerusalem, okay? So just as a side note, that's a speculation. It's a speculation. I put that forward because the text doesn't tell us, but Timothy is with the group. So one of the questions hopefully you're asking in the text, where's Timothy? Where, why isn't Timothy mentioned? Okay? Timothy is no doubt still around He's, he's in the area, but the account is specific to Paul and Silas here. They get dragged into the marketplace. These men being Jews exceedingly trouble our city. And they teach customs which are not lawful for us being Romans. You see that? Them being Jews, us being Romans, to receive or observe. 
First charge is simply this. These guys are stirring up trouble. They're disturbing the peace. Second charge. These guys are teaching some alien doctrine to those of us who are Roman citizens. Do you find something missing here? Why are they taking them to court? What's the motive? These guys took them to court because they lost their income. Not because they're Jews. Not because they're... They lost their income. That's the primary. But you notice that doesn't get mentioned here. You know, right here at this particular point, 20 and 21, might have been a good opportunity to tell the authorities about your Roman citizenship. For whatever reason, though, there's no mention of it right here. Perhaps the mob mentality grew to such an uproar that no one heard them speaking. Anyway, maybe it was intentional by Paul not to mention his Roman citizenship here, but to walk by faith, allowing the Lord to lead him even through this difficult valley ahead of him. There's no evidence in the text of a trial. There's no evidence of questions submitted to the two missionaries. Once the charges are proclaimed, the multitude rose up together against them. And church, you ought not be surprised when the multitude rises up against you. See, because speaking the truth, declaring what you know to be the truth of God's word, that can get you into trouble in this world. Did you know that? It can get you into trouble. I heard a pastor speaking this past week. He's actually a pastor down in Atlanta. And, and it came across this, this article that was dated back January 10th, 2013. It was found in all papers, um, the, the Washington Post. It was about this particular pastor. You see, this particular pastor had been invited to speak at a presidential inauguration. And what we find, in fact, I just read an excerpt or two, because when we speak the truth, we need to understand sometimes it's going to get us in trouble with the world. One of the excerpts, talking about the pastor in Atlanta that gave the church that he pastors, where, and it says, where many of his sermons present a traditional view of gender roles in marriage. Gave a a link as to where you might find more of this pastor's messages. Including, the article says, excerpts of the most inflammatory passages. At the end of the article, the writer says, As we now work to select someone to deliver the benediction, the the prayer, at the presidential inauguration... Article says, we will ensure their beliefs reflect this administration's vision of inclusion and acceptance for all Americans. This particular pastor respectfully declined to move forward, citing that this was nowhere even on the radar one of his primary objectives in doing what he was doing, and the church felt it was in the best interest to not move forward. You know, standing up for the truth can get you into a lot of trouble. 
when you say and speak about homosexuality as this pastor did. And speak that it is wrong. Not because my opinion says it's wrong, but because God's word says it's wrong. We've seen instances time and again where those things get you into trouble. The question becomes, church, are you willing to stand up and speak the truth of God's word? Are you going to back down? Are you going to turn away? Are you going to compromise what you know to be true? The text says that the magistrates tore off the clothes of the missionaries and commanded them to be beaten with rods. Now, Roman government in Philippi was ordered by two magistrates. And closely connected to these magistrates were officials. They're called lictors. And and these men, uh, we would call them in modern day, we would call them police officers. And so these police officers, these officials, they would follow, they would be like the right-hand men of these magistrates. And these officials oftentimes carried around with them bundles. And in their bundles, they would have these rods. And on occasion, they would also have in their bundle, they would have an axe. And so these officials, these lictors, these right-hand men of the magistrates, they served as the corporal punishment and on occasions, capital punishment. On this particular day, where these officials attached to the magistrates were assigned to beat Paul and Silas with the rods. When they had laid many stripes on them, Paul mentions in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty five. he says, three times I was beaten with rods. I'm sure one of those in reference to this particular point in time right here. When they laid many stripes on them and threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely, having received such a charge, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now, we need to also understand something. The the stocks were not a pleasant experience. Anybody ever been in stocks? Seen them? Kind of know what they are? (coughs) Remember, with bloodied backs... Aching bones, multitude of opposition, they're now thrown into prison. Not just one of the regular cells, but the inner prison. What you might call today, we might just call that maximum security. The missionaries had their feet fastened to stocks. Stocks would have, they had these wooden, wooden boards. And would have, on these boards, they would have various places where your feet would go. And so you might imagine, depending upon the kindness of the jailer, how far apart your feet might go in these stocks, and you're in these stocks, having just been beaten. Do you think the missionaries are rethinking their journey to Philippi about right now? Listen, at about this point, some of us might have been asking those questions. 
I don't believe Paul and Silas were asking those questions because, because they understood the nature of God's calling on their lives. And part of that calling included opposition. Part of that calling included persecution. Part of that calling included trials and suffering. See, here's one of the greatest differences between Paul and Silas and you and me. For the missionaries in this text, being beaten and thrown into prison is counted a worthy privilege to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. For many of us, we equate pain, suffering, opposition as a sign that something has gone wrong. And we do our best to avoid these things and we try to wiggle our way out whenever we see signs of it heading our way. Second Timothy chapter 3, Paul's writing to Timothy. Verse 12, and he says, All who desire to live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. All. You see, suffering for the sake of the gospel is part of the work of the gospel. Do we hear that? Suffering for the sake of the gospel is part of the work of the gospel. Philippians chapter 1. I love these verses. 29 and 30. Paul says, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Having the same conflict which you saw in me, when did they see it in him? How about Acts 16? And now here is in me. Paul is writing the letter from his imprisonment in Rome. You see, we like that in, the, in Philippians 1, 29, 30. We like the believing part, to believe in him. But talk of suffering, and we're quick to flee. Do you desire to live godly in Christ? Know that godly living comes with a price tag. Godly living will cost you. It might cost you your job. It could cost you a few friendships. Godly living will always manifest itself in opposition from the world, for the world hates Christ, and it hates those who follow Christ. John 15 says that. Is it possible that the Spirit of God could lead such godly men into the inner prisons of Philippi? Keep reading. The text isn't done. But at midnight, and I stop right here at midnight. Ah, this is a wonderful phrase. But at midnight, do you know that the God of the Bible is a God who never sleeps nor slumbers? Remember the psalmist says that? It's a God who never sleeps. And when you start to chart God's work through the scriptures, you begin to see that he shows up at odd places and at odd times, odd hours of the day. I mean, he, he, he's, he's in, the, in the midst of this pagan culture in Ur of the Chaldeans, and he calls this guy Abram to go to this place that he hasn't seen before, and he's not going to, and he goes by faith. We see God show up in a fiery furnace. Remember that? We see God show up in a prison cell like we're reading here. We see God show up in a lion's den. God shows up along the road. He did that with Saul, now Paul. God shows up alongside of a baby boy in the midst of the mighty Nile River, preserving and protecting baby Moses. 
God showed up in the midst of a battle with a giant. God showed up in the life of a young man named Peter while he stepped out of the boat onto the water. God showed up at a wedding in John chapter 2 in Cana. And he showed up on the hillside of the gathering where 5,000 plus were fed. He's always on time, isn't he? Did you know God's never late? God's never late. When God shows up, things turn out differently, don't they? Paul and Silas have been beaten, and they are now safely fastened in maximum security, but at midnight. You might be in one of those moments where it seems like midnight. The situation appears dismal. It might seem like no one cares about what's going on in your life. Things haven't happened like you thought they might. And you're about to lose hope as you sit here today. You're about to throw in the towel. You're about to be done. I want you to know that it might seem like midnight in your life. It might seem that way. But God is a God who still works at midnight. Praise God he does. He still works in those times. Any of you ever had a hard time sleeping at night? I don't know that Paul and Silas could have done much sleeping that night anyway. In their condition, if you think about it. Imagine what it might be like, though, to try and get a good night's rest in such a predicament. Look at how they use their time. Verse 25. They were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. This is good. In chains... They are free to sing and pray to God. In chains, they nevertheless worship the one who has set them free. In chains, but living free at midnight, in prison, in maximum security. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. I love these passages of scripture here. Paul says, remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel, for which I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains. But the word of God is not chained. The word of God is not chained. And he goes on, he says, therefore, I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Therefore, I endure all these things for the sake of the elect, that they might obtain this salvation which comes by way of Jesus Christ. You see, Paul had a much bigger picture in mind, church. He had a larger vision that encompassed those yet to embrace the gospel. Paul was not consumed in himself or gaining attention to himself or his work or his ministry. His priority was preaching Christ, enduring all things for the sake of the elect that they too might receive 
this wonderful salvation. Paul saw his chains as a necessary pathway for the gospel to advance. And church, he was about presenting every man mature in Christ Jesus and striving with the power that was working mightily in him to accomplish this. How do I know that? Colossians 1, 28 and 29 says that's what he was about. Preaching Christ. Warning every man. Teaching every man with all wisdom in order to present every man to God perfect and mature in Christ Jesus. That's what Paul was about. You know, it was said of Harriet Tubman that when she discovered what it was to be free, that she wanted to help other people to freedom. When Paul discovered what it was to be free in Christ, he labored to help other people toward that same freedom in Christ. He labored to that end. Having been rescued and set free, is it your desire to see others rescued by this same gospel? Is your life marked by getting the word of truth out? Are you more concerned about what man might think of you? Or is your heart set on God's great rescue in your life, whereby he called you out of darkness and he rescued you and he transferred you into his wonderful light? You see, we need to understand something. It's a great rescue church only insofar as your life reflects it. It's a great rescue only insofar as your life reflects it. Not simply what you say. How are you living? Isn't it interesting that the text says that the prisoners were listening to them. You know, midnight in the prison cell, you tend to hear probably men cursing God. Midnight in the prison cell, and you might be inclined to hear men blaming others for their problems. Midnight in the prison cell, and you might be inclined to hear men gossiping and talking about how bad their situations are. It's no wonder these prisoners were listening to Paul and Silas. The text says that at midnight, Paul and Silas were singing and praying to God. Worship was going on at midnight in the prison, and the prisoners were catching a glimpse of maximum security inmates whose hearts had been pierced with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Something is different about these men. I wonder as I read the text what they sang. I wonder what they were praying. I don't know for sure. But we look at the next verse in 26. It says, suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened. Everyone's chains were loosed. Verse 26 might just help us understand the nature of verse 25's prayers. Perhaps they prayed for God to rescue them. Perhaps they did. I tend to believe that their prayers were bigger than that. The earthquake, this natural disaster, shook the very foundations of the prison, opened all the doors, not just their doors, opened all the doors and unlocked not just their chains, unlocked everyone's chains. One writer said, no matter how securely men bind them, God can set them free. Amen. He can do that. And it's at this time that the jailer is awakened. 27 and 28 says the keeper of the prison awakening from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called with a loud voice saying, do yourself no harm for we are all here. Now, we have to understand the reaction from the jailer is understandable. He sees these open doors as he's awakening from sleep, as he sees and hears perhaps the rumbling, the earthquake, 
The foundations have been shaking. Doors are opened. Chains have been loosened. He understands that a prisoner is always looking for the opportunity to escape jail. And yet Paul, in seeing this jailer sort through the reality of what was yet to come for him, for the jailer would lose his life if he lost any of his prisoners. Paul yells out in a loud voice, we're all here. Put your sword away. And you get the idea that it's dark. I don't know, Paul may have, there's a lot of little questions that aren't answered in the text. We don't get it, but Somehow, someway, Paul saw him, knew he was there, saw maybe a shadow, a reflection or something that he was about to take his own life. And Paul stops him. Paul and Silas are in prison for setting a slave girl free. And as prisoners in maximum security, Paul and Silas are now supernaturally granted the opportunity of escape. Now is the perfect time to get out of Philippi. Go, run, flee. But what looks like a great chance to get out of town actually becomes the right time for preaching the gospel to one whose heart is now ready to hear. We see the example in Acts 5. God rescues his angel, remember, rescues the apostles in prison. He rescues them not to say, hey, get out of here, quick, go. He rescues them to remind them of his, of his purpose. He says, go, stand in the temple. By the way, the temple is where they just got arrested. Go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. Paul's words here in verse 29, I believe, are very instructive for us. Verse 28. They reveal the heart of Paul. You see, he had the way of escape paved for him, but he remained And through God's intervention, the entire group of prisoners remained. How that happened, I don't know. God did it. God did it. That's the only explanation. Puzzled, no doubt, as to why all the prisoners stayed put, the jailer had been able to see something in Paul and Silas. The fact that Paul spoke up on on the jailer's behalf. This jailer right now is stirred in his spirit. The text says that he called for a light. He ran in and he fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. And then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. Listen, the one who's free is asking the one imprisoned. The one who's free is trembling at the feet of those imprisoned. The one who's free, the one who's free being the one who doesn't have the chains on, the one who hasn't been behind bars, the one who's free is addressing Paul and Silas as sirs. Now I know Romans, the Roman soldiers, they were treated, they were they were. They were trained in such a way to respect others. There was a very high character. But we think about this situation. This is a maximum security prisoner. And he's addressing Paul and Silas as sirs. The one who's free is concerned, it seems, about his own freedom at this point. 
He's inquiring with the men who seemingly know what it is to be free, even though these men have been chained. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? If the Lord had ever prepared a heart to hear the gospel, now was the time. Here's a Roman jailer asking Paul and Silas what he must do to be saved. Imagine the scene. The prisoners perhaps heard, if not saw, some of what was happening. The jailer recognized something of God in these missionaries. He's before them trembling. And we're to assume that he believes Paul and Silas have an answer to his question. Whatever the jailer believes about God at this point, he, he goes to the ones that can give him an answer in his greatest moment of need. Church, are you able to give an answer to this very need? We're called to have an answer. You might be thinking, no one ever asked me that question. I mean, that's pretty simple. He's got it laid out on the platter. That's pretty... No one I know is asking, what must I do to be saved? Listen, if no one is asking you, it could be that you are living a detached life. The Bible calls the believer to always be ready to give an answer to those who ask you about the hope that lies within you, right? Is it possible no one's asking you because your life looks a lot like the world? Could be. I read this passage and, and I just, it, it lifts up off the page and it asks the question, who's going to reach the Roman jailers of the world today with the message of Jesus Christ? Who's going to do it? Notice what Paul and Silas do not say in response to the question. Let me give you a few things they do not say. They do not say you need to quit your day job first as a Roman jailer. They do not say, hey, forget it. Man, God's got no place for people like you. They don't say, hey, you need to go through an eight-week class to verify and establish your salvation. They don't say, hey, just, just stop doing bad things and replace them with some good things and you'll be saved. No, doesn't say that. It doesn't say you need to sign an apostolic book to prove that you're one of us. He doesn't say, hey, just repeat this prayer after me. What does he say? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and your household. Now, the book of Acts provides in and of itself many short forms of what it is to be saved. Sometimes we see the phrase repent and believe, right? Repent and believe. Sometimes we just simply see believe. Sometimes we see the phrase, uh, we saw, as many as were appointed to eternal life, believed. We see sometimes Luke, as he's moved by the Spirit, will point out and give us God's end of the work. Sometimes he'll point out what man is doing, and he's John 1.12, the believe and receive. I'm using those terms that are in the Scripture. That's what we do. We believe and receive. We're responding to what God initiates in our life. We saw here earlier in chapter 16 that the Lord opened the heart of Lydia to, re- to heed the things spoken by Paul. 
We see later on in Acts chapter 26, we'll see him before Agrippa and Paul will describe his ministry in three ways. He said, hey, I called people to repent of their sins. I called them to turn to God and I called them to do works befitting repentance. So, so Luke, in the, just in the book of Acts, as he's moved by the Spirit, he's very intentional about giving different ways of describing the same salvation event. I'm grateful that what we have here is, in verse 32, I'm grateful that we have verse 32 attached to the text. It says, Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. The word of the Lord was brought to bear in the life of this Roman jailer. Also present were family members, relatives, those that were in his household. The whole household heard the word of the Lord proclaimed. And and about this point, I wonder if Paul and Silas were reminded of their bigger purpose once again. Just moments ago, they were beaten and bruised and locked up in prison. Now they remain beaten and bruised, but unlocked, still in prison, but sharing with this jailer what he must do to be saved. Listen, suffering and persecution may actually separate you from this word of God. This is an important note. Suffering and persecution might separate you from the word of God. You may not have a copy of the scripture with you. You might not have your iPhone, no Bible software available to look in the moment when you might need it. Is the word of God in you? Is it readily available when needed? I believe that's why the psalmist says to hide it in our heart. Yes, so that we might not sin, but I also believe hide it in our heart that we might have it when we need it. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the word of God. I want you to see in the text the fruit of a changed life right here. There's a fruit. It says he took them the same hour, 33, 34, and washed their stripes. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. We're going to be having a baptism today. And when he brought them into his house, he set food before them. And he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. Let me give you quickly four heart changes in this jailer. First of all, he took care of the missionaries in their time of need. He took care of them. He washed their stripes. He had a heart to serve. Heart change. He had a heart to serve. Secondly, he immediately desired to be baptized. It says immediately. He and all his family were baptized. They were baptized on the heels of hearing the word of the Lord. On the heels of understanding what it means to be saved. There was a heart to identify with Jesus Christ. Third, he offered them hospitality. Think about it. The prison jailer. He brings them, these maximum security prisoners, he brings them into his house. What if his boss found out about that one? And what's he do? He sets food before them. He has a heart to love, minister, nourish. But then we see, fourthly, he rejoiced having believed in God with all his household. There was a heart to rejoice, a heart of rejoicing. Verses 35 through 39 simply serve as the postlude to the text. It begins. And when it was day. And you know, when it was day. A lot went on during that night, didn't it? There were a lot of things that went on during that night. A lot of really good things went on during that night. When it was day, magistrates sent word to the officers and had the officers go to the jail and inform the jailer that those missionaries could now be released. 
And that seemed like good news, but Paul refuses to go quietly, stating at this point their Roman citizenship, wanting to make things right here, essentially. I believe there's also an aspect here bringing forward his citizenship, he and Silas both, that on behalf and benefit of the church, I believe Paul was stating this and wanting this to come forward and wanting the magistrates of Philippi to understand, to be responsible, just teaching some responsibility, how to treat people who are, in this case, Roman citizens. And the text says that the magistrates become fearful. They were not to do what they did to these Roman citizens. And they become fearful. And, and frankly, you can kind of understand as, you, as they go back to the prison, as they escort them personally out of prison, they want Paul and Silas to be gone. Leave, please. We want you gone. They beg them. And before they leave, verse 40, they pay a visit to Lydia. Will you look at what's happened in verse 40? It says, So they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren. Now I suppose one might say, Well, Lydia and her household were saved. And that would compromise the brethren. I, I don't think so. I think there were some other brethren in addition to Lydia and her household. When they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them. Isn't it just like Paul and Silas here? They had just been beaten. Been in stocks. Sleepless night. They encouraged them. And then they departed. The Lord rescued them out of prison, which is a big praise. But he also birthed a church through his missionaries in Philippi. Think about the potential makeup of this church right here in Philippi. Lydia and her household, that former slave girl. I'd love to think that that former slave girl was part of that church. The Roman jailer and his household. A lot of differences between those folks, isn't there? And who knows how many others were added to the Lord during Paul and Silas' stay in prison. Who knows how many others were caught by the Lord through the witness of Lydia and her household. And I even wonder if a few of those prison inmates joined the church in Philippi. See, a heart that has been set free by Jesus sees his purpose attached to eternity. A heart that has been set free by Jesus understands his mission is bigger than himself. A heart that has been set free by Jesus is bound to rejoice. The church has come to life in Philippi. Rejoicing characterizes the hearts of people once in bondage, once far from God. And you know, as I was thinking about this at the end, I got to thinking, you know, is it a coincidence that, that the letter to the church at Philippi is themed a letter of rejoicing? The church in Philippi is rooted in the joy of the Lord. What about the church here at Hope in Christ? Do we have and experience that same joy? Are you standing fast in the liberty by which Christ has set you free? Perhaps we could say, as Paul said to that group of Philippians... Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. Amen? In Christ, we have much 
to be rejoicing about. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness in this word. Thank you for revealing yourself in these pages to show us, Lord, that what you've called us to is something bigger than just ourselves to to help ourselves. But, Lord, you have given this gospel to us. You have saved us that we might then tell others about this great rescue. This great rescue must make a difference in our lives. Father, thank you for the work that you did through Paul and Silas. Thank you for the example that's set before us in the scripture. And oh, Father, I pray that you would help us to be ready. Help us to be alert. Help us to be mindful of your voice, your spirit speaking. Help us to be mindful then to obey and to walk in that way. Grant us discernment. Help us to speak truth. Help us not to run from opposition or persecution or suffering. But Lord, if it's necessary, that we would walk through that valley understanding that you go with us. We don't go alone when we are going for your purposes. Help us to understand that you are a God who works at midnight. You are a God who never sleeps, a God who never slumbers. You are a God who shows up, and when you show up, things change. Prepare our hearts, Lord, that when we are in positions that you place us in, that we would be ready always to think the bigger picture, to think about why you have us here, to think about the gospel and where it needs to go. Pray we'd be mindful of those who are far from you, those who don't know you, those who need you, those who are in great need of a Savior. I pray we'd be ready to speak. And I pray, Lord, as we see transformation occur in the lives of people like this jailer. Father, we too would be encouraged by their rejoicing and that our rejoicing would characterize the lives of others who desire to know the same Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we pray in this in the name of Jesus and we thank you. Thank you for his wonderful salvation. Amen.